Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. This is Tho Bishop, joined, as always, by Ryan Macon, who in some ways is, is owning Twitter right now, uh, thanks to some remarks from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, who has put in, at least for one news cycle, the topic of national divorce into the mainstream. This is a reminder that if you've not purchased yet your copy of Breaking Away, uh, the case for uh, uh, radical decentralization and smaller polities. I think the subtitle might have a little extra to it. Um, and if you do not have your copy yet, you need to get it at the Mises Bookstore. And there is a promo code ROTHPOD, that's R-O-T-H-P-O-D, for a little bit of a discount there. The author of said book is, of course, our own Ryan McMakin. And Ryan, we are going to play a fun game today. This was my, my idea. We'll see if it works or not. Uh, some entrepreneurial judgment here. Um, your mental health is far better than mine because you are only a, a casual Twitter observer where I, I spend a little bit too much time at times on the bird site. So we are gonna play a fun game where I we are gonna go through tweets about a topic that you know very well. And we are gonna start with Marjorie Taylor Greene's own remarks. And we're, we'll, we'll, we'll comment on what she gets right, what she might get wrong at some points. Um, if any, we'll, we'll you know, open-end it here. Um, but then afterwards, we're going to go after her haters. And we are going to read their remarks, including one from the uh, daughter of our former vice president, uh, Liz Cheney, and get your takes on their takes, on Marjorie Taylor Greene's takes. So this, this is going to be Twitter's inception today here on Radio Rothbard. I feel Murray would approve if he was here. Um, so, Ryan, first and foremost, how are you doing and how do you feel <laughs> about this topic uh, coming up from... Uh, a, a relatively higher profile, even if at times for more, uh, you know, less less for substance and more for sizzle. Uh, how, how, does, how does it feel uh, kind of riding this wave of uh, decentralization talk in, in Twitter? Yeah, it takes all kinds, right, to, to kind of get your message out. And I've, you know, obviously I am not a Marjorie Taylor Greene, like core constituent type. I don't think I quite fit uh, the bill of her uh, most... Uh, active supporters. However, hey, if she wants to popularize the idea of radical decentralization among her corner of the ideological spectrum, fine by me, because we got to colonize all parts of that spectrum. And she wants to do that part. Go ahead. Um, she should be pushing breaking away uh, to her audience, of course. Uh, they should all read it. It's written at a sort of level where someone who doesn't read complex academic stuff can understand it. Um, and so I actually know very little about Marjorie. Uh, but I do know that this is she back in 2021. She was saying stuff about secession, too. So it is nice that a, a member of Congress, really, regardless of who it is, is really pushing the idea because it forces people to, even if they hate the idea, recognize that this is an idea that people have. And that you have to at least, uh, well, accept that it exists. I mean, you just can't pretend it doesn't exist, which is until a few years ago was generally the attitude, right? Like nobody, uh, nobody thinks secession is a good idea. Quote unquote, we tried that in 1861. But after like Scotland started talking about secession and of course, Britain leaving the EU, you started to 
to hear about all this stuff about, oh, you can deconstruct these states into their constituent parts. And I guess, oh, yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with slavery either. And uh, so the, the issue has just become more high profile in recent years. And now if members of Congress want to talk about it, that's great. And uh, we'll help yeah. them. And, and what's interesting is that she, so we're going to start off with kind of her, her, her first little tweet about it, which you know, set the Internet ablaze. And the next day, she actually put out a, a pretty thorough um, tweet thread. Uh, I'm not a big fan. Um, you may not have noticed this yet, Ryan, but like, you can actually not go longer than the 240 character on it. And so, um, which I, 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 I'm not, not a big fan of that feature. But uh, so I'm, I'm flipping through here and her, the, the show more buttons. Like there's, there's a decent bits here. So we'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to make, not make this too tedious for our listening audience. Um, but we started off with a tweet um, from earlier this week on February 20th. Um, we need a national divorce, said Marjorie Taylor Greene. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this. From the sick and disgusting woke culture ideas shoved down our throats to the d- Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. Um, kind of touching on, I think, a lot of frustration that uh, I, 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 I know I pick up um, in the last few years. Um, but the more substantive one. Why the left and right should consider a national divorce, not a civil war, but a legal agreement to separate our ideological and political disagreements by states while maintaining our legal union. Um, okay. Um, definition of irreconcilable differences. And, and so, so, so I guess starting off there, it, it almost sounds more like a, a SOP secession. Um, if, we're, if we're maintaining our legal union, right, something more, you know, kind of, kind of federalist in, in a truer sense than an actual divorce per se. Um, you know, there's still an agreement, I guess, to, to you know, deal with the kids or something like that. Um, but, but here, here are her, her, um, irreconcilable differences and what she sees as the benefits. And I'll kind of go one by one and we'll kind of talk about your, your view on this. Um, so her definition of irreconcilable differences, inability to agree on most things or on important things, which seems true. Um, tragically, I think we, the left and right have reached irreconcilable differences. I'll speak for the right and say, we are absolutely disgusted and fed up with the left cramming and forcing their ways on us and our children with no respect for our religion, faith, traditional values, and economic and government policy beliefs. Um, do, do you think that this, this itself is, is a, is a reasonable justification, um, for a, a, you know, soft secession, hard secession, a political dissolution, if, if there's not any sort of agreement on sort of core ideological points of agreement? Well, sure, because I think what, what it means is that, and I think what she's really describing is a situation where these people in this place have very different values and they think we should live by their values and the fact that we don't want to makes them hate us. And uh, and I'm sure the other side believes the same thing, right? We just want decent behavior from people and those those troglodytes refuse and they must hate us. So it's it's very important to keep in mind that you got to get rid of these old romantic ideas about, oh, we're all one nation and we're all in it together and uh, people in uh, New York City on the Upper West Side, they think just like me because we're all Americans at the core and all that. No, (laughs) this country is packed full. If you are like a regular old Christian sort of person who thinks that family is important and you uh, you think all that Christian bourgeois morality stuff is good, 
And you also think that people should be able to run their businesses more or less in the way they think and that employees are voluntary, uh, are people who have voluntarily made a contract with the employer and you don't need someone meddling in that sort of stuff all the time. You don't need a guy who bakes cakes. One baker of a thousand in a city needs to be forced to bake cakes for a transgender party. If you think... (laughs) If, if you think that way, this country is chock full of people who hate you, who hate your guts. And, I mean, we see it on Twitter all the time. They, they think you're just straight up evil and they want you to die or be jailed. And just look at Twitter. If you oppose vaccine mandates, they literally will say things like, well, I hope you get a horrible disease and die a terrible, painful death. And if you oppose, if you express any reservations about something like gay marriage or whatever... You are just the devil incarnate and should be jailed because speech is hate and you're an intolerant Nazi. Why would you want to live in a political union with someone who hates your guts? So I just don't understand why people think that therefore separation would not be an improvement on the situation. And you could think about it, too. You'd be able to get along better with these people if you didn't have to fear any domestic policy stuff with them, right? I'm sure we can all agree, even with people who hate your guts uh, on all domestic issues, that, oh, yeah, sure, having a military of some sort that is designed to protect North America is fine. We can all agree. Okay, great. That's good. And that's all you need to agree on. And all you need to do is come up with enough funding to ensure that that takes place, which is a whole lot less, by the way, than the trillion dollar budgets that uh, the Pentagon currently gets. But how hard is it to agree on that sort of thing? In fact, history is full of confederations where people could come together and agree on some foreign policy issues. But if if you are now worried about people a thousand miles away who have a totally different way of life and value system, and they have an ability to impose domestic policy on you in some way, that's actually going to cause fear and resentment and ultimately hate. So the way to diffuse that is to decentralize all that, to separate that. And that doesn't necessarily, I suppose, mean a a break in foreign policy. Fine. But I don't like paying taxes to help people who hate my guts impose policies on me. I, I just don't see why anyone... Um, would disagree with that position. But I guess some people, you know, they learned in school that America's some sort of, I don't know, mystic union or something, and we all have to love people who are our family members or something. I saw some dumb thing that Glenn Beck said where he said he was talking about national divorce and he was like, let it be clear that we are not the ones abandoning the marriage. It is the other side that is that's stepping out on us. Stop. Stop with this marriage analogy garbage. It was never a right. marriage. It's not a family. It's not some sort of sacramental union. That was never true. Only the most naive pawns believe that sort of nonsense. So stop being a naive pawn. Yeah. yeah. The president is not our daddy, you know, <laughs> like all that. But, but uh, um, actually, some, some of the talk there about spending, she actually comes into this next. Um, with our federal government in over $34 trillion in debt, and on the verge of default, 
clearly both left and right have proven that together they both aren't responsible or aren't responsible with hardworking Americans tax dollars. A national divorce would require a much smaller federal government with more power given to the states. Hence, we solve our debt and spending problems immediately. Reducing the federal government would be easy because states would be completely control of things like education, trade, and commerce, and communications to a much larger degree in the federal government to a much smaller degree. Um, kind of a practical sort of argument there. Um, you know, and then I, I know that this kind of touches on some of the, uh, you know, I, I love that the, some of your articles, you've, you've highlighted the work of Mark Thornton on the role that um, it, it's not simply state level government, but constituents to within state legislatures that have a, a big impact on the uh, cost of government per person. Um, things like that. That's why you know, when California has a smaller state house than a New Hampshire state house, um, you get what we have in modern day California. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the the physical side of the physical arguments to national divorce? Well, one interesting aspect of even if if she's talking about soft soft separation, soft secession, whatever, let's talk about that a little bit because something that um, I've mentioned on the site a couple of times, but it's never really been like. Uh, in a, a thing of emphasize. But if you think about it, if if the federal government becomes a foreign policy only entity, then you know what your federal taxes are for. And it ends this whole charade that we get constantly where, oh, one side wants more spending on social benefits and the other side wants more spending on debate so we're, or on defense. So we're going to have this negotiation and each side's going to going to take a loss on on their preferred spending but the other side will get more spending and it seems no matter what one side always wants more spending on defense or whatever one side always wants more spending on welfare and you know what it always just means is it always just means more spending and then they can always just say to you well we need more federal dollars so you can get those programs you want what are those programs you want who knows? We'll decide once we get the money. And so what it means then is it can play both sides. So I give all this money to the federal government. And by the way, if you're a taxpayer, most of your taxes goes to the federal government, overwhelmingly so. All right. Don't fall into that that thing where people think that your state government is somehow oppressing you more. It's not. It's way impoverished compared to the amount of resources that the federal government steals from you year in, year out. So you, you give all that money to the feds, and then you, you think that it's going to go for defense spending or whatever. Oh, surprise, it's actually going to go to this other welfare program. Or you're a 30-year-old worker, sorry, it's going to go to an 80-year-old retiree who lives in a mansion. Uh, that's what that might be. You never know what it's going to be used for. You never know where it's going to go. And both sides can play the game where they say, give us more money or we'll have to cut your program. Whereas if it was only a foreign policy organization uh, at the federal level, you'd know that every foreign dollar or every federal dollar was just going to go to the Pentagon or the State Department. And then so de a debate over federal spending is identical to a debate over foreign policy spending. And that so greatly simplifies it, and it makes it much difficult for federal, much more difficult for federal politicians to play you on that. And you know, then that state level stuff is then going to be used for those domestic programs. That would be a very good change, just in terms of political practicality and the amount of deception that the federal uh, uh, officials could can put over on you. Um, but 
as far as just, I, I don't know that I agree with uh, with Green that this would immediately solve yeah. uh, <laughs> our federal wishful problems. thinking at that point. <laughs> I mean, why would it? Uh, people have come to expect a certain amount of social benefits spending, and this would not make that uh, trillion dollar Social Security bill just go away. People would want that money somehow. Now, we have talked about uh, decentralizing the federal welfare state, which is absolutely crucial. I think until people start talking about that, um, you're never going to be able to separate up the union in any way, just as the United Kingdom would have never, ever done Brexit if they had had a unified uh, welfare system, right? If there'd been an EU welfare state and the National Health Service had actually been administered from Brussels instead of from London, the UK would have never done Brexit because they would have just been able to hold them hostage um, and say, hey, you leave, you're, you're, you're missing out on all your healthcare money. So I think that's the biggest sort of Damocles that uh, feds like to hang over anyone who talks about secession is, well, we're not giving you any of your Social Security money if you leave. So they've got to figure out some way to uh, prepare their population for, okay, we've got to replace the federal Social Security system. But again, even that, that's not going to make the high cost go away. All that does is then mean the states are going to have to deal with all of those spending issues that they couldn't before. Now, I do think that at the state level, it would be much more responsive in the sense that when you do run into real budget problems, you would actually cut spending, which never happens at the federal level because they just print more dollars. Uh, so I think it would save a little bit us from the pains of constant monetary inflation. That would be good by breaking up the federal government and reducing it a little bit. But it would just mean the states then would have to deal a lot more with social spending because no one's going to approve secession unless these states assure everybody that they're still going to get their checks in the mail. I mean, grandpa's absolutely not going to sign off on secession unless he knows he's going to keep getting his free money transferred to him from, you know, a 20 year old current wage worker. Uh, so uh, he, he needs to know that that's going to happen. So uh, the uh, fiscal issues aren't just like evaporating, but it does change the dynamic of power considerably. It changes the um, the ability of the federal government to hold states hostage, to threaten states with loss of funding, and to basically boss states around using the power of federal dollars because the states are constantly stealing money or the federal government's constantly stealing money from the states and then saying, well, we won't give it back to you unless you do what we want. So obviously you got to change that dynamic if you're hoping to uh, make any sort of significant change in federal power. And if our listeners have not uh, listened to the most recent uh, episode of Human Action Podcast, or at least the one right before we recorded this one on this episode of Radio Rothbard, um, Bob and uh, Jeff uh, go through the, the demographic economics um, and various social programs and things like that. And that kind of you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's number of, of $34 trillion in debt is, is kind of missing a large story there. So I recommend that for anyone interested in uh, kind of exploring the, the rabbit hole of the, the depressing state of social programs there and the disaster it means for um, for a variety of things. Um, moving on, uh, next she, she kind of hits on uh, education differences that was sort of merging um, between red and blue America, which I think we're kind of seeing e even right now um, with, with more action from, um, from Republican states. Um, but uh, as she says, we would immediately uh, alleviate the need for departments like the Department of Education. States would have full control of their public education. Um, education would look different all over the country. In red states, there would be various 
degrees of more traditional public education, charter schools, home homeschooling, technical training in colleges and universities. Red states would likely ban all gender lies and confusing theories, uh, drag queen story times, and LGBTQ indoctrination or indoctrinating teachers. In China's money and influence in our education, while blue states could have government-controlled gender transition schools. Uh, red state schools would bring back prayer in school and require every student to stand for the national anthem and pledge of allegiance, while blue states would likely eliminate the anthem and pledge altogether and replace them with anthems and pledges to identify ideologies like the trans flag and Black Lives Matter. Perhaps some blue, blue states would, e would even likely have government-funded Antifa communist training schools. I mean, elected Democrats already support Antifa, so why not? Red states would ban biological males from all girls' women's sports and all girls' women's places of privacy. Red states would maintain the truth that there are only two genders and would require the biological identity of each person's gender on their identification, not how the person identifies. Um, and uh, if, if you want... Uh, if you, if you want uh, gender identity on, on your legal records, you have to move to a blue state in order to be legally free to lie to yourself and others about your identity. Um, so there's a lot, lot of pack in there, but I, I think there's, there is a, a core of truth while, um, you know, uh, I think there's, there's can, it'd be curious to see what, what pledge you're, you're doing in a post-American uh, national force uh, world. Um, you know, pledging to the union for which it stands becomes a little, little interesting there. Um, <laughs> indivisible. I, I do think there's something to be said, though. Yeah, indivisible. Um, I, I do think there's something to be said, though, about you know a, a more decentralized educational network. There, there would be more, I think, positive. Yeah, and, and I don't mean this in, in a you know, more, more explicit um, overtones of. Um, you know, perhaps religion. I mean, you could, you could imagine Utah, for example, Utah schools perhaps being more um, explicitly Mormon um, within their public schooling. I mean, you could imagine parts of the country where it, 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 there might be a, a more explicitly religious fervor. Um, and, and so I, I do think there's something to be said that while um, her, her outline here on what red and blue state America would look like in the classroom is, is, is perhaps uh, in a playing up to perhaps a little bit more of a, of a Fox News audience. Um, I, I do think there's some truth there that there, there would be some, I think, values pushed at the, the state and local level that perhaps are have been restrained as part of the, the national education sort of system that kind of erodes regional uh, differences and, and kind of cultural preferences there. Yeah, well, obviously, the Federal Department of Education has no reason to exist. I mean, I saw that Thomas Massey introduced legislation to just abolish it. It's one line. Fine. All it is is an organization, a department that just basically launders money and takes federal taxes, and then it uh, farms it out to school districts that do what the federal government wants them to do and therefore qualifies for federal grants and that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, state education has always been primarily the responsibility of either a very local organizations, you know, based on uh, county level property taxes in my state, and they do get supplemental state funding, but it's clearly a state and local centered funding model. And yeah, there's some federal grants that come in, but you want to build a new school, you're doing a county level bond issue. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. And so the Federal Department of Education, useless, pointless. Uh, it exists as a essentially a social policy department designed 
uh, to encourage certain ideologies, certain uh, views, um, certain, uh, I mean, we can thank George W. Bush, of course, for No Child Left Behind, and oh, where the federal government has decided this is the sort of curriculum uh, that must be used, and uh, so always just been a terrible idea, and it's never even gotten to the point where it's mostly a federal show. It's still, even to this day, primarily a state and local show, so it shouldn't even be like a concern, right? I mean, if you had some sort of radical decentralization in the U.S., you just get rid of federal education stuff. Uh, that wouldn't close a single school. And every school district would just continue doing its thing. And since it wouldn't uh, have as much federal money extracted from it, every year would have money to do that. Now you could say, oh, well, what about the poorer states in the United States? I, mean, I always think New Mexico, Mississippi, West Virginia, right? Uh, keep in mind that the poorest states in the United States have GDP per capita on a par with much of Southern Europe. So all these Europhile types are always telling, oh, look how wonderful Portugal is. They do such a great job with everything. It's clean. It's wonderful. There's no crime. There's, uh, the children are nice and educated and all of that stuff. Well, there's more than enough money to do exactly the same thing in any state in America. Uh, and the same with all of Eastern Europe, right? Uh, Hungary, right? This is not a country full of illiterates. They have their own education system. They're on a par with the poorer states in the United States in terms of their output, their wealth that's available to them. So, okay, there's no reason then to believe that these poor American states would just have completely no ability to have any sort of, say, healthcare safety net or education system, whatever. They already have sufficient resources that's on the same level as much of Europe. So let's just stop pretending that all of these states would collapse into chaos without extra federal money extracted from other more productive places. So that's just really a non-issue, and education is at the heart of that. Just just get rid of any federal stuff. It's just completely unnecessary. Uh, and it's like even barely, if you look at the budget, it's not even that big. Uh, it's just there really to bully uh, school districts into adopting more federal wish list items. I'm going I'm to skip ahead. I'm just going to make only uh, address one more point because um, she ha she has some other things about national defense and policing and things like that. Um, again, the, the threat is, is is worth 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 reading if you're interested in the topic. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, sh she does make a point about elections, which has obviously been a major uh, point of of passion uh, on the right um, ever since 2020. Um, and I know we, we've talked about, about it a little bit, but she points out that uh, we must not ignore how different elections would be between red states and blue states. In red states, they would likely pursue one-day elections with paper ballots and require voter ID with only the red state citizens or even red state taxpayers voting. I like that. Red states would not allow illegal aliens to vote, ballot harvesting, or mass mail and ballots right for fraud and could ban election machines altogether if they wanted to. And blue states would be free to allow illegal immigrants or illegal aliens from all over the world to vote freely and frequently in their elections like the D.C. City Council wants. Dead people could still vote. Criminals in jail could vote if, if that is if blue states would uh, even have jails or prisons anymore. Maybe blue states would <laughs> let kids vote, too. I mean, why not? If the left says children can chop off their genitals or breasts, surely the left would let them make permanent, important decisions like voting. I'm going to then highlight something that a, a California sheriff says. But but I, I think that, that there, there is a level of truth to this. If you did have a, a far greater uh, barrier between the political consequences of red and blue states, 
um, you, you would have, I think, not only changes in voting procedure, um, you know, like, you know, epic marathon long voting seasons rather than voting days, um, you know, the concerns about, you know, voting machines and paper ballots and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, but it, it would be interesting to see, you know, what would it look like for cities that only allow taxpayers or, um, you, know, you know, residents that have been there for a prolonged period of time. You can't just simply move to an area and immediately have political power over your neighbors. Um, and I mean, considering how mainstream, uh, not just within uh, blue parts of the United States, but I, I think Canada has talked about this other ideologically progressive areas have talked about, you know, 16 year olds need to vote, which makes sense if we're going to listen to 16 year old climate activists as we, you know, shut down, you know, major you know, policy points of, of energy and other things like that. Um, why wouldn't we give high schoolers the ability to, to govern um, our, our government? Um, but I, I think this this is an area where like you, you would see a, a lot of interesting curiosity um, and, and experimentation if we had a lot more uh, state and, and local sovereignty here. Well, I think, I mean, my personal view is that states should be able to send delegates to Congress in whatever way they want, right? If they want to have just no elections at all for federal officers and just say, oh, we're, well, the state government has selected these five people to represent uh, the state of Georgia or whatever in Congress, whatever, fine, same with the Senate. Um, and it would be up to the people in the states to determine how that would be determined. I don't think there should be anything in the Constitution that tells states how they would actually select uh, their uh, federal officers, their federal representatives. And of course, if they don't send anybody, then that's to the state's disadvantage, right? Uh, then they just have no voice in Congress. So obviously, they're motivated to send some people and as many as they're allowed uh, to have their votes. Uh but of course, I mean, just short of that, yeah, of course, states should be completely in charge uh, beyond whatever uh, the Constitution requires, as long as we're stuck with that, uh, to just do election law their own way. This is, of course, traditionally the way it's been done. And uh, I've, I've written an article on just how much it used to vary in the 19th century uh, when you did have a lot of states that actually wanted to attract more migrants. And so they invented what was called uh, declarant alien voting. So this was where you could show up in, I believe it was about 23 states in the U.S. that were doing it, mostly in the West and uh, in the, the more North, the old Northwest Territory, right? We're talking like Wisconsin, Illinois, stuff like that, uh, where they wanted more people. So you could move there, say, oh, well, I plan to become a citizen at some point in the next few months. And they're like, okay, here's your ballot. Uh, and so states were granting citizenship to people best based on their intent to become citizens at some point. And then this raised the whole issue of, are you a, are you a citizen of your state or a citizen of the federal government? And in the 19th century, it actually worked de facto in reverse, where if the state gives you citizenship, well, we I guess you're a, a citizen of the United States also, was essentially the way it worked. And so... States actually had were guiding naturalization policy on their own by determining who in their state was going to be naturalized and who wasn't. And the federal government just basically accepted from the state as to, oh, these are your citizens. Fine. Whatever. Uh, that was how it functioned when it was truly decentralized, as was the case in the 19th century, where states were determining what their voting policy was. They were determining what their how their elections were conducted 
and it was all done at the state level. Now, of course, uh, people who hate that idea would, would tell us that, oh, well, the only reason that states would have different voting policies is so that they can uh, uh, enslave people or deny the vote to racial minorities and stuff. But that's not the case in much of the country. Uh, so I've got I've got 23 examples of how states were welcoming immigrants uh, many of whom were Hispanics, by the way. It wasn't just limited to German white people of that sort uh, who were able to vote just based on their declaration of citizenship. So you found very flexible standards throughout much of the country, and that was just the reality for, for much of that time. Yeah, there's no reason why that can't work. And of course, if you look at, say, 19th century uh, confederations um, like the Swiss Confederation or earlier the Dutch Republic in the Dutch Golden Age, they they had allotted representatives they could send to the federal diet, the parliament, whatever you want to call it, um, the Estates General, and they selected their locals. The cities were able to send people that they selected a representative of in certain districts. They then selected their representatives and they, they, they sent them to essentially the, the legislature of the Confederation. And that's where they did their thing. Uh, there, was, there was no clear oversight. There was no centralized oversight of, oh, well, how did you allow these people to vote? Assuming they had popular elections at all, in some cases, which was not the case. Uh, and what were the rules and when did you have your elections? Obviously there had to be some coordination so that people would show up at the legislature, but beyond that, there just wasn't much coordination at all. And if you're just going to behave like a, a standard confederation, you don't need coordination among the states in terms of how the voting takes place. And if you don't trust people in a neighboring state to, uh, be decent human beings in terms of how they do their elections, well, then why do you want to be in a country with that person? I mean, this is the colonialist attitude, right? Oh, people, you know, those Africans, they don't know how to do anything right, so they need the enlightened French and the enlightened British to tell them how to do everything. That's essentially the attitude on these states. Oh, these people don't know how to do enlightened uh, policy, so we therefore need to uh, maintain the right to send in the U.S. military or the FBI when they don't think the way we think they should do things. Okay, well, um, that's fine, but let's not deny that it's basically just this elitist idea where you think you should be able to boss other people around because they do things in the incorrect fashion. So that's the whole idea there. Let people send whatever federal uh, delegates, whatever way they want to the federal government. That's really not the business of the federal government. It's just a matter of, hey, we're a member state. We're paying in taxes for purposes of defense. So let's now discuss how that money will be spent. That should be really the only function of the federal government at all. Ryan, after we're done recording, I'm going to put you in contact with a buddy of mine in Marjorie Taylor Greene's office so you can discuss the uh, virtues of the Dutch Golden Age with her um, to help fortify <laughs> her arguments in the future. I think that would find uh, be, be quite useful in the, as she in, 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 engages in this important battle. Um, but you, you did bring up uh, as well a point that uh, Jeff Dice has made as well as many on Twitter. Um, it was interesting to see the pushback to this discussion um, and we saw it in practice in terms of some of the responses from the left and some of the more astute commentators on the right acknowledging it is that ultimately the pushback in the, the, the hostility, the very, very heated hostility from the left to this idea kind of does is connected to this this imperialistic uh, energy, right? The, the idea that, you know, we, we cannot allow you know, these poor trans kids in Florida to be the victims 
of this evil regime that wants to deprive them of their own identity, yada, yada, yada. Or we can't allow for the state of Alabama to impose more strict requirements on um, the, 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 their voting you know, procedures in, in their state or, or you know, that there very much is, I, I think, this, this imperialistic mentality that, that fuels so much of the hostility right now. Um, and I, I think when anyone ever brings up this comment, I mean, you can even see it when Joe Biden was talking about how, you know, oh, my, my friends on the right talk about how, you know, they need to keep their their assault rifles, um, you know, because, you know, the, the blood of uh, the, the tree of liberty is is uh, fueled by the help. Uh, you know, uh, what is it? Um, so the blood of patriots and yeah, tyrants. Blood of pat- yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and and you know and basically, I mean, threatening going to war with people over this. Um, you know, this this dynamic is, I, I think, so mainstream that they don't even really quite are aware of it. And so we're going to highlight some responses to it um, from a variety of different actors. We're going to get through a few before making this uh, episode too too long. Um, but one. A friend of the show, one of our favorites, Liz Cheney. Um, let's go with, with 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 the dumbest, most most midwit response out there uh, uh, first. Miss um, Liz Cheney, let's review some of the governing principles of America, Marjorie. Our country is governed by the Constitution, Ryan. You swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Secession is unconstitutional. No member of Congress should advocate secession, Marjorie. Um, you can hear the shrill voice within it, um, you know, so, so it is, what, what, what is your response to the, this is unconstitutional point and should a, uh, anyone that has sworn an oath to the constitution, um, talk about secession or yeah, talk about secession in a remotely positive way, Ryan. Why are we listening to the rantings of this unemployed woman, Liz Cheney? I don't know why we should care. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, I, this, why is secession unconstitutional? Uh, because a federal judge in White versus Texas said so. That's it. That's not based on the text at all. The text is clear. It's not uh uh, maintaining national unity, forcing states to stay in is not among the enumerated federal powers, and it's not among the powers prohibited to the states to leave. Also, Tenth Amendment and Ninth Amendment say, hey, if it's a listed right here, you have other rights too, and those are all reserved to the states or to the people. Uh, so the legal argument was always correct that the people were saying, oh, the Tenth Amendment allows us to secede if we want to secede because it's nowhere prohibited in the Constitution. Uh, that That's clear. And then it still wasn't settled until White versus Texas after the Civil War. Which, by the way, was this whole, like, we have it both ways, where you never actually left the Union, so you've always been part of the Union, uh, Texas, so... Uh, by the way, by the way, we, we're going to militarily occupy Texas, but it never actually left the Union. I, I don't know how they ever explained that one away. It would seem that if if you had always been part of the Union, military occupation of that part of the Union would be prohibited. Uh, but the courts, of course, they'll just invent whatever BS explanation they can. They're lawyers. Uh, that, so, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, Texas never left, but uh, they uh, were now going to fight a war against them, burn half of the country down. They were always part of America. We were burning half down part. We we're burning down half of America, 
And now that I've mentioned all those things, yeah, secession's no good. Uh, here, I've written it in my uh, in my judicial ruling, which basically rewrites the Constitution. Okay, great. But there was no amendment that uh, outlawed secession, and Tenth Amendment still exists, as far as I can see. So uh, <laughs> it's it's not a real thing, Liz. This whole idea that uh, secession is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional in the sense that the people in charge, that the rulers of America, think it is mostly. So that's what matters. Federal judges say it's unconstitutional. People with uh, with the military controls say it's unconstitutional. So they'll gladly kill people to enforce that. Um, now, of course, would the would standard fighting people get behind them and kill their neighbors in the name of uniting the country? Polls actually show they wouldn't. I think polls that have shown that people who even the polls that show that a majority of people are being against secession show that approximately five to 10 percent of those people are actually willing to prevent secession. Because the question is, do you think secession is good? A majority will often say no. And then the next question is, well, would you be willing to fight a war to prevent secession? And then almost nobody says, well, yeah, because who, who wants to fight and die for that to keep Mississippi in the Union? That's insanity. Only like the most crazed people like Max Boot think that's a good idea. Uh, so, yeah, whatever, Liz. Fine. Uh, that's a whole debate. Obviously, she's just saying things that she thinks she can rally people to her over. She's just really well, desperate like for another war, right? I mean, that's just how it works. <laughs> All right, so now, now we have uh, Mr. Tim Wise, who I was not familiar with, but he's got a large enough Twitter following to, to look at it, 153,000 uh, 153, followers. So good, good way to go, Tim. Um, he is a, uh, an anti-racism educator. Um, latest book, Dispatches from the Race War, available from City Lights Books. Clearly a very serious individual, Ryan. Um, his tweet, though, is, is a little bit more. It's, it's, I think there's a little bit more substance here than Liz, so less deranged than Liz Cheney. Um, <laughs> Has it ever occurred to you that if it wasn't for the blue parts of those red states, the latter would be entirely broke? We subsidize y'all's country asses. You are welcome, Mr. Tim. So what, what do you, what do you are, uh, what, what's your take on the, okay, well, the economic consequences, red America is, is generally poorer than blue America, and this is why secession is completely impractical, and we should never even consider the subject. Well, that's not totally untrue in the sense of if you look at the blue states, they tend to have more cities, larger cities. And in spite of the fact that's, that some red state sort of people think that cities are just filled with uh, you know unemployed uh, nobodies <laughs> who are all on welfare, the truth is America's cities are really quite productive, right? There's a, there's a lot of financial workers in these cities. There's a lot of people who make things in these cities. And by cities, I mean metropolitan areas, right? I'm just not talking about the inner cities. Like These are places that uh, people do things, make stuff, produce wealth. I mean, that's just the reality. So if you have a lot of those cities within your state, you're going to end up having on paper a boatload of wealth. Um, now, so that's why California always shows up as so wealthy, right? It's got it's got Northern California filled with all of these uh, very high-priced uh, Silicon Valley sorts of people who, at least on paper, produce a lot. I mean, I don't really think that a lot of what they produce is particularly useful or valuable, but... You know, they managed to get enough viewers on Instagram or whatever that they can part fools from their money. And so a lot of money goes into those stuff and this shows up as big GDP. And so it shows up as big GDP for the state. 
overall because they got those big cities. Agricultural areas, not nearly as productive, right? Agriculture is not especially productive in terms of dollar amounts, especially in colder areas where you're producing even like lower yield crops like alfalfa and stuff like that uh, or corn. So it's just it's not going to show up as uh, particularly productive, wealthy places. However, it's easy to overplay that distinction, this idea that the red states would be utterly broke without federal subsidies is just plain nonsense. It's just empirically untrue. I've run the analysis myself in terms of, okay, how much tax revenue is coming out of these states and how much is going back? Most states are around one-to-one. There are some states, like the the very poor states, that rely heavily on their military bases. Um, and I think Mississippi is one example where that lopsidedly brings boatloads of money into the state uh, because, of course, military bases are concentrated in the South and in the Southwest for the most part. And so that places a lot of federal money flowing into uh, somewhat unproductive places like New Mexico uh, or the, South, the, the Southeastern United States. And so you've got a lot of federal employees in those sorts of places, you know, federal bureaucrats, soldiers, uh, who are collecting a federal paycheck in those places. Now, uh, a lot of that's just waste. So, I mean, you would still be able to have these military bases. You would have to make some of those people get real jobs in many cases, uh, maybe get rid of the, the local military bases, uh, uh, you know, equality officer or whatever they call those people, that sort of thing, maybe function on actual military defense. Who knows? But the reality is also that uh, the, the money that goes into those states because of the, the welfare demand in those states that drives up that, uh, that appearance of the states collecting a lot of welfare— is the fact that the the cities have a lot of poor people in them, just like anywhere else, and so they're they're collecting federal dollars that way. Uh, how much of that is waste? I don't know, but I do know that this idea that that a red state's taking in twice what it's giving to Washington is just simply untrue. The numbers don't add up or suggest that. Also, I ran, I saw another one of the few tweets I did see on this was a guy saying that. Um, the blue states were 75% of the nation's GDP. I recently ran that analysis for a foreign policy article, and I don't know where he came up with that number at all. He must have been like, really? He must have been taking any state that had like a blue governor or a blue state Senate or something like that and counting that as a blue state and just like piling on blue states and minimizing red states to arrive at that 75% number. So a lot of these numbers you see thrown around about how poor the red states are isn't even true. Plus, Obviously, it doesn't apply to uh, certain states like Texas and Florida, which have sizable financial sectors and big cities and that sort of thing. It only applies to that small handful of mostly rural red states, some of which are these very rural like Western states that, are, that have a perfectly high standard of living and do not rely much on federal dollars at all. A lot of the stuff that uh, skews that is in, say, the upper... Uh, West, so states like Montana and stuff. So there's all sorts of like federal installations and there's missile silos and all that sort of thing, which the Fed just wastes all sorts of money on. And so that all skews the numbers. So this idea that everybody's uh, uh, poor in the red states and relies on federal money is just not the reality. So one, one last uh, response. This is from Congressman Ted Liu. 
Um, so we got some Congress on Congress crime, not quite a caning, but uh, the modern day equivalent. Democrats in the majority passed a bipartisan transformative infrastructure law. We focused on you. What are MAGA Republicans focused on? Dividing Americans. Uh, also, Georgia acted like a blue state in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Um, and Georgia grows woke kale. To do with that, what you will. Ron, what, do you th what is your response to the argument, though, that without D.C., without the union, who will build the roads? <laughs> And, and what about borders? Uh, I, I, this, this might not be entirely what he's getting at. I've seen other things talking about, oh, well, national divorce is, in, is impractical because of infrastructure requirements, um, because of state borders. I know this has come up in the past. Um, can you talk a little bit about those arguments that, um, that the union is vital to maintaining um, you know, economic boundaries and, and the common market and um, kind of making sure that we have highways and all this sort of stuff and, and the open borders that allows for commerce and trade and within the the continental United States. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, the infrastructure question. I mean, again, the United, the the member states of the United States are among the wealthiest, and as standalone entities, are among the wealthiest republics in the world, right? And let's not forget, these are all like their own democratic republics, right? They all have legislatures, state senates, regular elections. They have a Supreme Court to determine whether something is constitutional, whether someone is being unjustly treated. They have civil rights commissions, all of this stuff. It's just the, the federal government needlessly repeats all of that stuff that all of these states have. So let's stop acting like the that the the member states of the United States are some sort of like, I don't know, like private kingdom of a small number of individuals or something. These are at least as democratic as all of those countries that the United States tells us is the democracies of the world, right? In fact, most countries in the world, they have far more limited re restrictions on who can vote in terms of voter ID laws are much stricter in Europe than they are in the United States. And so all of that stuff about how, oh, we got to worry about these countries, that, that these states, if we let them do their own thing, they won't even know how to build a road. They won't even know how to build a toll booth or a train track. I mean, what what could these people possibly do on their own? Hey, look, if if the polls can figure out all of that stuff, then I'm sure that the Floridians can figure it out. I mean, come on. So there's just that issue, right? Again, there's plenty of wealth at the state level if the federal government stopped stealing so much of it to build the necessary roads and infrastructure. It's not that hard. And then in terms of trade, of course, it's in everyone's benefit to trade substantially. And this is, of course, a reason why we got to get off of all of this um, uh, Donald Trump protectionism stuff, because all the protectionist arguments against foreign countries can be applied just to your neighboring state, right? And that would be a disaster to start having people buy off on that. But of course, the current president wants protectionism too. He's all talking about how uh, they need to protect American workers from foreign competition and all of that stuff. Well, why not? And Rothbard pointed this out in some of his better sections um, of uh, some of his old economic works is the same thing happens. Is it applies both to immigration and free trade. Is that like, oh, I'm sitting here in Illinois minding my own business and some guy from Massachusetts imports goods from Massachusetts and undermines my prices and my business, runs me out of business. I mean, clearly we cannot stand for that sort of horrible, horrible thing. Same, I'm sitting here minding my own business 
and some Yahoo moves in from Wisconsin and gets a job. He's stealing my jobs by working at the factory down the street, this horrible Wisconsinite. So all the same arguments apply. And of course, all you're doing then is... uh, is consigning yourself to poverty if you start throwing up trade barriers. And however, there's lots of empirical evidence showing that smaller states, that is smaller like entities that do not have this huge, vast, uh, unitary economic union to draw upon, they are more open to trade. We saw this after the Cold War. We saw that as small states were formed uh, without being forced into participating in the Soviet economy and all of that, that you had the Baltics, you had the smaller states of Eastern Europe, and then, of course, this has been uh, part of uh, just countries in general where they recognize that they cannot produce everything on their own. So therefore, they're open to more trade. In fact, what they then show, and the, the empirical data shows this too, is that smaller countries tend to have lower taxes on imports, Then larger countries, they tend to also have lower corporate taxes because they want to attract more capital to their state. So what you would actually probably mostly likely have, and this is what the data shows, is that breaking the United States into smaller economic entities would actually foster more competition between those entities where they would want to lower taxes to attract more business, more capital to them. And they would recognize that that there would be big losses incurred if you started shutting out Uh, quote-unquote foreign, as in from another state, capital, workers even, all of that sort of stuff. It doesn't work to your advantage at all. So you would probably then see some cases where there might be like one state is really, really heavily relying on one particular industry. uh, And so they they impose some protectionist measures for that. Uh, But we're all living under federal protectionism now. So what's why are we acting like this would be some humongous change? The fact of the matter is, is that smaller states that are heavily reliant on neighbors to get all the sorts of goods and services they need, they're open to it. They recognize the advantage. So I just don't see really any actual historical evidence that tells me I need to worry about that. Well, that is, uh, I think, think three of, of the better, more substantive, I mean, for lack of a better word, um, I'm being very generous there, um, responses from the uh, Twitter ether um, this has been a fun conversation. Um, you know, what, what do you, what do you think generally, honestly, um, about the, the, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's approaches? I, 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 you know, I, I was impressed. I mean, obviously it's easy to kind of throw out a tweet out there and kind of drum up attention and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I think I'm, I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of her than, than others. I think that she, she has generally been a, a pretty effective at drawing attention to issues that I personally care about. Um, the, the mistreatment of January 6th prisoners is something that really, you know, every time I see, uh, uh, a prison reform libertarian kind of completely ignore, dismiss like Marjorie Taylor Greene when like uh, to me, like that's a lot more courageous than uh, working with Van Jones on, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, Koch brothers project where everyone gets very paid very well for. Um, what do you think about the quality of her, of her arguments and her approach there? Do you, is, is this more than you would expect normally from a Congress woman, not to, not to be overly you know, praiseworthy. I mean, this is silly, a Rothbardian show. Um, though I have a feeling Murray would, would find Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, amusing, um, is, is, do you think this is a good start in the right right direction? Having you know, again, something of a more substantive uh, push out there from from a a at least prominent, uh, uh, very very loud, lack of a better word, politician out there. Well, she's at least thought about it, right? The fact that she's bringing up some actual specifics about things that can be done, um, and that 
in, in your opinion, I mean, it sounds like she's she's tends more towards just sort of the soft secession that let's just turn the United States back into a confederation, um, a true confederation d- designed for defense. That I mean, I think that sounds very reasonable, and it's not quite as radical as I think what turns a lot of people off. I think most people are not prepared for like real, true independence where you have then you need a passport to get to the uh, the neighboring state and that sort of thing. So fine. I mean, there are lots of good confederations that have functioned very well and functioned for a long time. And they were just geared toward defense and not toward any t- sort of internal governance. So I think that angle is probably pretty good. And then, yeah, focus on low-hanging fruit, probably things like the Department of Education. She should probably identify some other departments that need to be abolished as well. Uh, that, I mean, the Department of Transportation, uh, you don't need that either. Europe has shown that obviously you can have independent states uh, coordinate their uh, their transportation policies, their air, a- their aviation policies, their train policies, all of that stuff. It works quite well. It doesn't require a federal government there to make that happen. They coordinated all that well before the EU became the more centralized thing that it is now. So yeah, I think we could just continue to point to those things. I would think that she should probably see the irony of talking about the greatness of uh, the Pledge of Allegiance if she's going to be talking about decentralizing the United States. I mean, that was just some scam from some 19th century socialist who wanted uh, national unity. So probably probably dispense with that. Uh, and then I and then I'm always turned off anytime someone talks about these traitors, those traitors. Uh, Treason doesn't exist, and there's certainly no such thing as treason against the federal government in any meaningful sense. I did a recent article on this, on seditious conspiracy, how that's a made-up crime that they only invented after the Civil War, that treason was never more than just those very closely well-defined, actually taking up arms sorts of crimes uh, as outlined in the in the federal constitution, and you know why they did that is because historically uh, the more tyrannical English kings had a very broad definition for treason. Treason is whatever the king doesn't like. Treason is you've betrayed the English people, whatever that even means. And so the the guys who wrote the constitution were forced to include a very very narrow definition, where it's actually taking up war. Uh, against the federal government. So I think she should tread very lightly on this idea of saying that people who have a different idea of foreign policy than me are traitors. That's going down the entirely wrong road. So uh, clean up all the treason stuff and the one nation indivisible stuff and and focus on some of the things that we could start to radically decentralize immediately. And I think we could continue down a good road there. Well, we'll have to send her and her staff some copies of Breaking Away, The Case for Secession, Radical Decentralization, and Smaller Politics by our own Ryan McMakin. Again, if you don't have your copy, then what are you waiting for? You get a discount with the coupon code Rothpard, R-O-T-H-P-O-D. Ryan, it's been a fun episode. I'm going to leave the audience with one more tweet. This is from uh, John Pavlovitz, who is the author, apparently, of um, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. I'll let you decide if that is ironic with the following words. America is better than Marjorie Taylor Greene, this beautiful nation of decent, intelligent, compassionate people with disparate culture, theological, political, and ideological backgrounds need to reject her ignorance and violence. We need a divorce from mindless bigots. 
seems to me like that's a, that's an endorsement right there of national divorce, of, of uh, breaking up from people politically, from people that uh, you can't stand. And I think that is exactly the sort of mentality that's fueling the interest of this on both sides of the political aisle. So thank you, John, for helping make the case for national divorce. Uh, for Ryan McMakin, this is The Bishop. This has been Radio Rothbard, and thank you for listening, and hope you'll tune in next time.